Welcome to Raiders on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, communications and behavioral expert Richard Spitzer steps into the interrogation room to clear up a few things about his debut work. Rich has over 45 years experience in communications and behavioral research and was once an executive VP of one of the world's largest marketing research firms. After retirement, Rich pursued his interest in macro trends, but also considered laws of attraction, manifestation, and metaphysical concepts in his research. He applied his expertise to pursue and identify practical modern methods to both the macro and the personal, such as manifesting thoughts and ideas to achieve our goals and remedy the convergence of global trends with potentially irreversible consequences. His debut book, entitled The Margin of Error War, just released this past June. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Rich. Thanks for making time to join me today. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, I'm currently reading The Margin of Error War, and it's an, an amazingly intriguing book. Uh, for readers who haven't heard of it or of you yet, what do you want them to know about this debut work? Well, it's, uh, as they say, ripped from the headlines. Uh, yeah. We've had a long-term war with adversaries like China and Russia, but the digital age changed the nature of the warfare, and in 2016, it all exploded in their face, you know? Mm-hmm. And what do we do going forward? Not just about 2020 election, but the nature of war has changed. Yes. Nuclear is really outmoded. It's all digital. Yeah, and, and I'm, you know, I think that this book, it's its such a Venn diagram of different genres. I don't think it really fits well into any single box. It, it's like it's part history, part current events, uh, part cautionary and predictive tale. Uh, where do you think it belongs, and what would you like to see it shelved on, or, uh, yeah, what would you like to see shelved on either side of it? Well, that's a profound question. I've, I've wrestled with that. I've been asked. It's been classified as political thriller, uh, cyber war. Um, you know, I think uh, one, actually the editor said it really belongs in political science mm-hmm. since it addresses how, in this case, cyber t- tools are being used to affect political outcomes. It can be used in many other ways, but this book focuses on the, the culmination of all this technology for for propaganda and political purposes. So to me, it's political science plus technology. Yeah, and as we were talking in the in the green room uh, before we uh, made it official today, I I'm a little obsessed with uh, with artificial intelligence, and then, you know all those things kind of play a a role into this is the technology that we're using both, you know, in our private lives and you know, the governments and, and using it our, affect our public lives is all developing at a breakneck pace that we cannot comprehend, understand, or even adapt to. And um, it's really concerning to me going forward, what that means for our civilization. Exactly. And when, when the printing press was invented, you know, there were like two or 300 years to, for people to learn about, printing and reading and, you know, rules and etiquette and not that they were always followed, but what you said is right. So television developed over, you know, a period of 10 to 15 years, radio, but the internet literally happened, you know, in the scheme of history overnight and technology built upon technology. And, you know, I was back there in the 1990s when it first emerged and part of some of the early developments on internet-based survey systems. And, you know, 
in January, you could be getting a plan, and by March, there would be new technology. That's never <laughs> happened before in yeah. history. Yeah, yeah. for a new product to come out in the marketplace and already be antiquated is a phenomenon that's never existed in human history. Right. The technology you know, is evolving fast, but the fundamental uses of communication for both good intentions and malicious you know, mm-hmm. that goes back to the beginning of, of history. Uh, the, the sad thing is the, the, the criminalization and the malicious uses, you know, were adopted very quickly on. People saw the opportunity yes. to carry out, like you say, you're, you're in the crime writing business. Well, you know, the crimes are now being committed with different weapons, and we don't know how to identify them, how to fight them. and How to, how to we, locate them. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, one of the interesting things, I, the points I make in the book, and it's one of the more aha moments when I, when I discuss this with people, is that, you know, I say there's a 50-year you know, war after World War II, the, the fall of uh, Mao Zedong, and China began to, you know, try to assert itself. Uh, so up until that time, until the Internet, you know, the Russia and China and other countries were one or two generations behind the U.S., politically, economically, militarily, technologically. Mm-hmm. But on day one of the internet, everybody was equal. There was no yes. prior knowledge. And the pivotal point, the way I interpret it, because I watched some of it happen, was that, mm-hmm. you, know, and, you know, to be dramatic, on uh, day one, the, the other countries, our current adversaries said, we're going to weaponize the digital platforms. We can use mm-hmm. this to accelerate and expand propaganda. In the United yes. States said, we're going to commercialize it. Exactly. We're going to send you email. Yes. We're going to send you Instagram. And that's the tale of why we had 2016. We were focused on commercialization and our enemies were focused on weaponization. Yeah, it seems like the uh, the internet and technology have uncovered a, a major failure of capitalism versus these other political systems um, as a, a rule of governance. Right. And, you know, the, the irony of all this is that whatever happened in 2016 or before in the future, uh, the, the focal points of this digital war, uh, the subjects were not invented by Russia or China, the divisiveness, the issues, mm-hmm. whether you agree or disagree with policies, the issues were already here, but they had a mechanism, uh, a more effective weapon to amp it up. You know, not just fake news, but just exaggerate real news. Yes. Uh, so it's the most highly leveraged weapon we, we've probably seen. Yeah. And, you know, all the, you know, looking back at the history of uh, even just recent history, relatively, of, of propaganda and psychological warfare. And the Internet has now allowed people to put that war box or box of, of, of weapons into every home with internet in the world and give everyone access to, you know, this, uh, this propaganda to be affected by it negatively or positively. And it's such a massive scale that I don't know how you can even potentially undo this or try to take a step back from this as, as a society. That's, that's a dilemma. I mean, there's two parts to this. One is, you know, we're still worried about nuclear war and chemical warfare and biological. Those are real mm-hmm. and they can do very serious harm. But they can't necessarily bring down a country, if you're not the United States. Right. But cyber war could bring down any country in five seconds. 
we don't have to worry about a missile coming, you know, it'll take 40 minutes to get here. We could, each other, you know, mutually assured destruction was based on nuclear, mm -hmm. but now it's a digital form. Yes. But what can we do about it? Uh, well, first there has to be a, a political will to do something. I think the technology is there and uh, I don't know the solutions. I have some suggestions to start, which is you have to go to the heart of this primary weapon, which is how do we identify real news from truly fake news? Mm -hmm. We can't tell people what they can and can't say, but we can at least have more standards of, is this coming from a real person? Or you mentioned artificial intelligence mm -hmm. from a robot source. Yes. So there could be a new uh, standardization. I mean, you know, when you go to the drugstore and you buy some vitamins, it says this was certified to be produced with certain standard procedures right. that we think make it safe. If you buy chicken, it says, you know, USDA approved. Maybe everything isn't followed, but every discipline, every sector has some standardized rules and regulations that says you can probably trust this. Mm -hmm. We don't have that with communications in general, certainly not with digital. No, it's it's a wild frontier that even is is worse than the Wild West, which at least had some semblance of, of rules and order. But right now, we have no no restraints. So, yeah, they I think, uh, I forgot what commercial was, but the, the best customers and educated customers. So I think now it's a two-part thing. If we can begin to apply some standardization to how we identify north sources of news and then people will be educated and say well this is accredited i may not agree with what they write but i know they're probably not not a source making mm -hmm. it up but the other part which really gets to the political is that we don't have any standardization of political polls uh, i mean that's what we're all working on and that's what happened that's what i believe was manipulated in 2016. Yeah, it's, you know, reminds me of, you know, Mark Twain's lies, damn lies, right. and statistics. And, you know, you can create a poll to say whatever it is you want to say just by, you know, the manner in which the questions are asked. And it's, you know, it's gets presented and, and touted in, you know, journalism or, uh, you know, in editorials as uh, as if it's got some weight when, you know, the underlying facts may not exactly. be facts so i mean your your background is crime and mystery i've looked through a lot of your stuff a lot of you know wonderfully descriptive books <laughs> but you know i was talking to someone in the, in the mystery area about yeah this is mm -hmm. like a, you know, a modern killer we have a crime. we know who the traitors are we know who the victims are we know what weapons were used but we don't really know exactly how they pulled it off and that's the mystery and so i tried to investigate working backwards how did they do it right in front of us? And, yes. You know, I have my diagnosis because that's what I look for. You know, as an information warrior, not necessarily a crime fighter, but uh, same process. How did they pull it off without uh, us being aware of it? Yeah, and that's the, the, the nature of any decent investigation is uh, solving the mystery going backwards in time. And um, I'm, I'm really, really excited to get through the rest of this book and and see how all of this played out and what the evidence shows. Um, and it's like uh, the, you know, first few pages explain, it's, you know, a little bit hard to place it. It's, you know, fact-based fiction, not really, but it's, I, I feel like this is a lot more, uh, a lot more of a, like you said, a, a political science that's, that's potentially all true. Right. Yeah, there's so many issues. I mean, I don't want to dwell on anything, but like uh, one of the big divisive issues is, 
uh, every country is taking our jobs. <laughs> that, that, I don't agree with right. that statement. We've sent our jobs yes. to every country. I, mean, I was working at Sears back in the 70s where we sat around a table and the heads of the department said, where can we find the lowest producers of TVs and calculators? Let's mm -hmm. go to Japan. They didn't come and necessarily do it. But it even goes back further. You know, after World War II, uh, we wanted to help rebuild Japan. Mm -hmm. And we sent, or I think his name was Deming. He was the originator of the Six Sigma uh, quality control system. Mm -hmm. He went to Japan and set up their factories to make better quality products than we did. And we ignored it. We said, oh, you know. So a lot of, this go, a lot of the, the adversarial issues go back decades. Yes. And it created divisiveness here. So, like I said before, the issues are already here, but the conflicts are ages old. Yes. Uh, for the listening audience who hasn't had a, a chance to dive into this book yet, uh, can you explain how you came to possess and analyze data from our global adversaries that forms the basis of this research? Well, like I said, that's the, the, the fictionalized history. Uh, I, I know what happened. We know who did it. We know the tools that were used. And I really, in terms of the research, went back and read a lot of Chinese history from mm -hmm. the, after World War II, but after Mao died. And there was just tons of documentation. I knew more about Russian history. Yes. But, uh, but I looked back at the Chinese and saw what they did when Mao died, when they, you know, they had the People's Liberation Party, when they entered the World Trade Organization, when they started building infrastructure systems when we started shipping factories there and we started and they started buying american debt they started buying american companies. so i took all these known events and it's like any other you know fictionalized biography mm -hmm. i've i've imagined what discussions must have gone on certainly and when people making these decisions but using known facts when Chinese started funding their students to come to the U.S. and study here. And some are repatriated, some stay here. Um, uh, back in the 70s, 80s, you know, I was very involved in advertising. And we saw, at that time, Japanese country, companies buying into American uh, ad agencies. Mm -hmm. And you began to wonder, are they going to begin to influence the nature of what was being said? Like, I'm going to see a movie tonight at AMC Theater. I think they're national. They're owned by a Chinese company, but they know what kind of popcorn we like. They know how much we'll pay to see a movie. Mm -hmm. So there's all these known events. So you have to imagine, and even from the published papers, uh, the Chinese were never reluctant about putting out their philosophies, whether it's Sun Tzu in the start of in the art of war. Mm -hmm. I quote the 36 stratagems, you know, it's like, you know, know your enemies, know their weaknesses. So yes. I, I, I create a fictionalized uh, narrative of what these characters might have said that fit known events. And that's, you know, a huge difference in between uh, our society and theirs, right, is most of our culture and our society in America tends to run on four-year election cycles or, you know, eight-year, you know, somebody's going to get reelected. But for the, for the most part, Eastern society works on, you know, a much longer timeline of working on what's going to be the the objectives for the next 25 to 100 years. And having a, a society that's collectively focused together on those type of long-term objectives, I think, makes a huge difference in the outcome. Exactly. I mean, look at the history of China. They've had, I don't know, dozens of dynasties over 3,000 years. 
some of those dynasties lasted two or 300 years. So by historical standards, the United States is still in its first, you know, use the word dynasty. We haven't had a rise and fall. We've just been rising. So mm -hmm. history says every single society, civilization has had a, at best a hiccup and mm -hmm. at worst a fall. And we've never experienced it. Are we going to defy history? Uh, Chinese, you know, some British economists looked at the uh, estimates of the size of economies going back 2,000 years. And said 2,000 years ago, China was the largest economy in the world. And within the next 24 months, they could be the largest economy again. They have a sense of destiny. Yes. But the Russians committed the crime because the Russians are not the Chinese, even though they're all communists. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, I, I think I call that chapter "Oops." <laughs> the the the, uh, the Russians were impatient. Yes. Yeah, the Russians the Russians want to be Europeans. They want to be accepted on the global, you know, environment. But they're basically Europeans. You go back and you read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky mm -hmm. and all the elite. They speak French. They don't speak Chinese. So, uh, you know, they have different motives, but they were in a hurry. The Chinese, like you said. They, they're not in a hurry like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, much more patient. It's a, more of an, an, a long-term internal issue. Now, what, as you're going through the, the, the research that you used on this, what, what surprised you? Uh, what did you learn through this that you didn't expect? Uh, well, a couple of things. It's a good question because it's like, say, working backwards revealed that, so wow, there's so much polarization. How did our enemies create that? Mm -hmm. And I went back and I looked at, and I said, well, how polarized are our elections? This was a narrow margin. Mm -hmm. And we know that uh, changing the electoral college vote in three states, by I think it was a total of like 80,000 votes across Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, like like 0.7% difference in vote changed yes. the election. Yeah. So we're such a polarized nation. How did they create it? And I go back and look at the election numbers going back to 1824. And I was amazed that almost every election was narrow. I think the average margin since 1824 is like nine percentage points. And since, uh, I forget, since Reagan, it's been like seven points. Mm -hmm. So we've always been a highly polarized nation politically. So that surprised me. I just never thought about it. But when you compare it to the parliamentary systems where, you know, 22 parties yes. are running and they have to form a coalition, the U.S. has always been basically a two-party, highly polarized society. Mm -hmm whether it's liberal conservative, uh, whatever the, the labels are. So that, that surprised me that uh, we, we are politically, by the definition of our political system is a natural polarization. Yeah, and, and I think that one of the things in, in my lifetime, and I don't feel like I'm old enough to say this, but I, uh, I find myself saying it probably too often, that things have changed so much in our society since I was growing up. And in terms of politics, right, I remember seeing on, on TV and hearing in, in broadcast news and radio about events like, you know, uh, Reagan and Tip O'Neill going at each other all day. And then at night, getting together, having some whiskey and telling Irish stories. And I think in just those last, you know, few decades, somehow we have lost our ability to compromise. And uh, I think our politics anecdotally feel much more polarized today than they've certainly been in my lifetime. I, you know, in talking to some of, you know, kind of older family members, it feels analogous to maybe something as divisive as, you know, the, the end of the, uh, of the Vietnam era. And 
it really concerns me about how we're viewing each other primarily as enemies and allies versus neighbors and, and, uh, and citizens. Yeah, that's, it's very true, uh, Gavin. And I think part of it gets back to the internet that there's been a lot of fringe pe- people out there, issues, politics going way, mm-hmm. way back. Uh, again, through history, not just, you know, Chinese, but in Europe, they're always, you know, uh, cults, guilds, but they were in the fringe. They had no way of, uh, communicating with the masses. There was no yes. forum. They could print their pamphlets, but there was no way to change opinion on a large scale. The internet yes. changed it. Like you intimated mm-hmm. before, anybody with a computer and a good mouse can be a cyber mm-hmm. warrior. And you don't know whether they're one person or represent a million people. So when everybody is shouting and there's no yes. control, uh, we don't know what to believe, who to believe. So uh, part of it is we then go to leaders who promise quick solutions. Uh, I mean, part of the research, and I, you know, I yes. quote uh, some of uh, the observations of even the Chinese and Russians that I sort of made up that, you know, back during the Nazi era, I think it was Goebbels who said something. If you want to control society, first scare the people, then tell them you can save them. Mm-hmm. And uh, But now anybody can scare anybody. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so who steps into the void? Yeah, and I, I don't remember who it was. Uh, maybe it was in a philosophy or psychology class, but I, I recall in college um, a professor talking about that, uh, you know, uh, exercise caution when someone offers you both to identify the enemy and to provide you with the solution. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> now, for anyone sitting at home in the audience and is considering writing something similar to what you've done here with the margin of error war and you know, kind of backtracking some current events to, to look at the, the, the mystery of their origin, what advice or counsel would you have for someone just starting off on that project? Well, let's see, I can tell you the process I went through. I thought I had a great idea. Aside from the fact that you got to sit down and do it. Uh, <laughs> yes, there's always know, the work. The big, yeah. the big leap for me was I had a great idea that filled up about three pages. Mm-hmm. And how do you turn three pages of a good idea into a book? And you got yes, you got to do some research. You got to look at all the, the the steps that you want to communicate. You don't want to be redundant. And for me, the challenge was how do I turn an idea? And that's where the hard part is. Uh, what? Do you, how, how much do you need to inform the reader? How much history do you have to bring in? In this case, nonfiction. Uh, to me, writing fiction like you do is much harder because. I've got to fill 300 pages of characters, dialogues. It's got to weave all these things together. But mm-hmm. nonfiction is, is easier because there's a lot to work with. So I guess my advice is really make sure you have an idea that has uh, a robust background of information, not just uh, it's a good idea, but there's nothing behind it. So that's why I have first discover. I have this idea that adversaries can infiltrate our digital communications was there anything behind it? Was was there any evidence? So I had to look for the evidence of the of the hypothesis. If it wasn't there, there wouldn't have been a book. One of the central themes of this show is that uh, it, it takes about a decade of consistent blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success in the publishing world. <laughs> and um, it sounds, you've alluded to it a, a bit, that this started out as just an idea for a f- totally fiction book years ago and it has now kind of become a, a bit of a nonfiction. What was 
kind of more of that detailed journey from the inspiration, the impetus of the story itself. Uh, how did that come about? And then lead you to, to put the book out today? Well, so I had the idea just because of my own background in the research and advertising world of what was happening. And I put it aside because I retired. I started another macro trend forecasting business, but it got me very, very deeply involved in the digital information world, uh, using uh, all the digital search engines to capture and identify and evaluate information. And it just built on my experience of how information influences people, their thoughts, their expectations, their behavior, and very hard to analyze, very hard to use for forecasting because there's so many variables. So I was working on that for a long time. But really it was about two years ago, three years ago, I decided, you know, I'm going to become a writer. I mean, I'm in my 70s, so, hey, it's, it's never too late. That's right. I guess. And so this is my third book in two years. And it happened just by accident. I actually heard someone, you know, much like yourself, talking on a radio show. And I communicated with her and because I was fascinated by her content. She says, wow, we have similar ideas. Do you want to write a book with me? So I got into writing because I had 40-year desire. But one person said, do you want to do it? So I was very lucky. <laughs> yeah. So it just takes sometimes that, that one push, that one little influence in life to, to set us off on this journey. You know, I've read a lot of books that writers have written about writing, and, mm -hmm. and you, you probably know more than I do. But it's basically don't you know, bet on. <laughs> don't wait. Don't wait. You can never. Don't wait for the mood. You'll never be in the mood to write. You have to start writing in order to be in the mood. And I think that's one thing I think is very true. I can deliberate and procrastinate, but once I sit down and get going, mm -hmm. all of a sudden I forget about the procrastination. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, I didn't expect uh, that this was such a uh, such a business right like I think the the idea that people have about being a writer is this glamorous you know work not all that much um, have this wonderful inspired moment where you sit down and produce a lot of work and then go on about your luxurious day and uh, it's much more like you know that infamous quote about just sitting down at the typewriter and bleeding um, and uh, it's very different than, than what I had expected, but still also really wonderful exercise and in intrinsic catharsis. Right. I mean, in effect, you know, you know, I started with an idea, but a blank page. But my business career is I've written thousands of reports and proposals. You know, some might be uh, almost, you know, a book length. Yes. Uh, but, you know, A, I was being paid to do it. I wasn't trying to sell it. You know, someone hired me and my company to do a major study. We had lots of, you know, raw material or research to work with. So it's easy to write a hundred pages when you have tons of uh, information, you have support, you know, you're being paid yes. for it, whether or not the client likes the result, but writing a book, it's intimidating. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's like, it is, you know, you only, you're just taking a, a piece of your soul and exposing it to the world for criticism. It's no big deal. Exactly. You know, what, what would you most like readers to take away from this book, uh, The Margin of Error War? Well, in, in, from a real world perspective, it's that uh, we have to not necessarily learn more about the digital world or artificial intelligence, but we have to take more responsibility for learning about what's going on uh, in the information. And actually, we're going to have to make some effort to try and figure out 
what's true and not true. Not what's say which policy is correct. That's mm -hmm. a separate issue. But yes, you know, we just can't uh, rely on uh, it being self-evident. Mm -hmm. uh, no one's going to you know, put the cautions out there. But in terms of the margin of error, I, mean, I picked that title because every political poll says, here are the poll results, candidate A, B versus the margin of error. Yes. Just remember, the margin of error says, uh, what it really represents is we're giving some poll numbers that have a, that have a high probability of being correct. But the, what it really means is the margin of error is just a statistical you know, concept that it says that we think these numbers are right most of the time within this range. But it also means 5 or 10% of the time, these numbers are wrong. Yes. So if it doesn't look right, uh, it may not be right. Do you have a current work in progress or another potential bombshell that global audiences are going to need to read and heed? Uh, I'm working on a different genre altogether, going back to metaphysics. So I've put out a book uh, a few months ago called The Manifestation Formula, which is about, I guess you call it self-help, the power of positive thinking. Yes. It's another ages-old concept, yes. but I try to put it in a practical, quantitative method uh, because I, I applied the same approach. How did that person achieve their mm -hmm. goals successfully? And I'm struggling. What was there in their nature, in their background, in their history? So I try to take a more, you know, quantitative uh, approach of what makes people tick to get things successful. And I, I think a, a lot of those uh, those kind of metaphysical concepts get um, really misconstrued by a portion of society that uh, you know, they sum up the theory incorrectly that, right, if you just wish it enough or think it enough, it happens. And I think really for me, uh, ideas of manifestation are much simpler that if you put enough thought and effort into it, you're going to take those small steps to become big steps to become goals that is a, a lot more um, impactful in your own life than just sitting around wishing to win the lottery. Exactly. Yeah, I'll send you my book. <laughs> but, you know, so it's not the, the guru woo-woo. I mean, if someone said to you, Henry Ford got it right, you know, he has a famous quote, if you believe you can or you believe you cannot, you're correct. Yes. You know, no one thinks he's a woo-woo. How about Willie Nelson who said, if you replace negative thoughts with positive thoughts, you'll have positive outcomes. Well, he's not a, an outsider guru, but you go back and the teachings have been there, but you touched on it. Those ideas have been hijacked mm -hmm. because they have not been sufficiently explained in a way that made sense to me. So I decided to try to make sense first to myself. And if I couldn't believe it, how could I tell anybody else? So I came up with basically more of a, scientific semi well maybe more of a statistical approach sure. to of why do things work out okay for most people most of the time but you can't always get everything you want all the time now uh, in my experience writers are also the most avid readers um but i wonder if you have a, a favorite fictional detective or investigator either in books tv or film oh i have lots i mean to me, everything is a mystery in terms of writers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, uh, I love Lee Child in the Jack Reacher series. I like, I like six foot five <laughs> inches of righteous might. Yes, <laughs> but uh, you know, I can go back 
you know, many years, uh, there's a writer called Thomas Wolfe mm-hmm. back in the 30s and 40s. He wasn't the mystery writer, but it was about the mysteries of life. But he was a most beautiful, elegant writer that said what you can do with language. But uh, you can go back to 1900, and there was a French writer, Anatole France. He was a French intellectual. He was brilliant at the time. Nobody remembers him, but he wrote in 1900, you know, things we're experiencing today, just looking at the nature of civilization. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, as a mystery, there were people who go back... Emerson, Mm -hmm. uh, they unraveled the mysteries of human nature before we had modern society because it was human nature. Yeah, and that's the the thing that continually surprises me when it surprises other people, that humans are humans, people are people. I I don't believe human behavior has has altered a tremendous amount over over time. Um, our, Our morals and values have, but at our core, we're still people. You know, that's part of my research for this book and other ones is that there's nothing we can invent. Everything is there. It's our job to discover the nature of the universe, relationships, you know, the world, the universe is described in math. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we didn't, in, we invented, somehow we invented. But, you know, it's, it's a lot of careful observation. And to start from that rather than make up stuff. I mean, yes. I, the idea of human imagination is just extraordinary. Based on the, uh, the question about your, your favorite investigators, I always ask this last one of all the authors who come on the show. Uh, God forbid it should come to pass, Rich, but if tomorrow you were to wake up and find that you've been murdered, who would you want investigating your case? You can assign anyone to your homicide. Let's see. Investigating my case. I'm trying to think of all the beautiful female investigators <laughs> I've seen on TV. Uh, it wouldn't be Columbo. No, you know, no. For uh, you know, maybe if I have a a, a partnership, it's uh, you know, a lot of folks are picking uh, a decent investigator with a revenge artist. You know, that make sure that yeah. uh, the bad guy doesn't get away. Yeah, I guess it has to be Jack Reacher because you know, I think nothing will stand in his way. And- He's just one of those characters that, not just me, he's a worldwide phenomenon. Yes, and, uh, yes, he is. He's a real popular choice on this show. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. that's how successful that author has been. Right? Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you making time to uh, to answer some questions and share your expertise in, in this book with us, Rich. It's been a pleasure having you on. Good. Thank you, Gavin. It's been, I uh, appreciate your insightful questions. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been author and communications research expert Richard Spitzer. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.